Law Focus Podcast, bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. Good evening, BioFM listener. Thanks for tuning in to Law Focus on BioFM 88.1 on this, the 8th day of September 2020. My name is Tapu Mahapi, and shortly you will hear the voice of Millicent Ndiweni, and together we are your hosts for Law Focus tonight. Thank you for tuning in. What you can look forward to on Law Focus this evening is a very sobering conversation on an incredibly disheartening issue, a pandemic, and certainly in South Africa, one that should be taken as seriously as COVID-19 is. Gender-based violence is an ill that entails different types of abuse, including physical, sexual, verbal, financial abuse, as well as isolation. Now, all of these abuses disproportionately affect women way more than it does men. This is apart from the fact that rape and murder as well as stalking, harassment, and other forms of horrendous abuses that women have to contend with in this country. This is taken from the Women Integral Impact Network site, which actually reveals the shocking statistics about gender-based violence in South Africa. And our guest this evening is actually the founder of the WIN organization. Her name is Francisca Fonsa, who speaks passionately on this issue and is an avid activist. Our conversation with her is very informative. She understands the psychology of abuse, the legal frustrations faced by survivors of abuse, and her own experience as a woman who was abused for many years. Her knowledge is so extensive, such that it would be an injustice to not have a follow-up conversation following tonight's show. Hence, this evening, Raw Focus will feature part one of the GBV conversation. And next week, you can look forward to part two, which will include the voice of a lawyer on this matter. Somewhat very different from the empathy and stance of the activists, as well as Francisca's personal story and appeal to communities to continue empowering themselves and those in positions of power, some kind of power, to join or continue the fight to reform the justice system and seek to hold perpetrators of gender-based violence accountable. But before we get into what I think will be a rather triggering show, let's first have a look at what the top legal stories are. Here are our legal hotspots. Rounding up all, all the top all stories, of the, stories of the week is Legal Hotspots. Former Justice Nguyenia stands firm on the judge issue. The Chief Justice of the Ngonyama Trust Board, Jerome Nguyenia, will not comply with a request from the Office of the Chief Justice, Mokweng Mokweng, for him to stop using the title of judge as he no longer holds that position. According to the weekend witness, Nguyenia was quoted saying that he did not regard the letter as a legitimate instruction from the Chief Justice, but rather it came from the officials of his office, the officials being the officials of the Chief Justice's office. And Gwenya was appointed as a judge of the High Court in 2000, and he later resigned due to personal reasons. According to the letter from the Chief Justice's office, Gwenya no, is no longer entitled to use the title of judge, as he resigned from the post rather than retiring from the post. And in our second and final news uh, story for this evening, while well, Media House seeks access to ESCOM corruption reports. So uh, basically what happens is that the Daily Mavericks Investigation Unit named Scorpio has launched an application against ESCOM in a bid to access key information regarding the Midupi and Kusile power plants. The application comes during new bouts of rolling blackouts, partly caused by large-scale corruption and mismanagement at the long overdue mega projects. The 
report says more than a decade of rampant corruption and mismanagement at ESCOM's two largest incomplete power stations, that is Midubi and Kusile, boom large in the country's ongoing electricity prices. ESCOM appointed law firm Bowman's in 2018 to conduct probes into allegations of corruption at Midubi and Kusile. The investigations were plugged about a year later, but not before the law firm's investigations uncovered solid evidence of top Level corruption. Scorpio sought to access all reports, draft reports, and related materials submitted to ESCOM before the services of the Bowman's team were terminated. Rounding up all, all the top all stories, of the, stories of the week is Legal Hotspots. Law Focus, handing you your rights. Tonight we'll focus on the plight of victims of domestic violence and we're going to be taking a look at the kinds of support and services that are available and whether they are adequate and actually can be accessed by people who need them. Gender-based violence is a phenomenon which is really and truly deeply rooted in the inequality that exists in our society and it continues to be one of the most notable human rights violations perhaps across the world but none more so than in our own country. Uh, our government has implemented a victim empowerment program which states that they're committed to intensifying and accelerating efforts to eliminate all forms of violence against women and children. Today we're going to be taking a closer look at that and how far we still have to go. Indeed, a government security cluster, which includes the police department, justice, the National Prosecuting Authority, uh, the police watchdog, IPERD, held a virtual dialogue as Women's Month due to an end to find solutions to the gender-based violence crisis that South Africa faces. The theme for that event, which was also joined by civil society activists, was dubbed Improving Access to Justice for Victims and Survivors of Gender-Based Violence. It was reported that government said that that, uh, the public still needed to do more to fight gender-based violence. However, activists insisted that they, as in, you know, the activists and the public, were doing more than enough to fight the scourge. So tonight, we're going to speak to Francisca Fonsa, who is the founder of the Women Integral Impact Network, an organization that addresses gender-based violence and femicide. Welcome to the Francisca. Thank you so much, Millicent. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And, uh, perhaps you can begin by introducing your organization to us. What does Women Integral Impact Network do? Okay, I'm going to be very brief. In 2016, the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development asked me to be the national champion for women in the department. Women Integral Impact Network is the national outreach from within the championship. And the focus of women is truly to empower women which of course includes the victims of gender-based violence. We are looking at mm. wellness training and also vocational training and SMME incubation to assist women to overcome the effects of gender-based violence, domestic violence and femicide. Before we just talk about gender-based violence more and more without really having not defined it, what are those behaviours that are attributed to gender-based violence? Because I might think I have experienced it when perhaps it wasn't gender-based violence and it was something else. So what are the particular behaviors that people should look out for when they think gender-based violence? Well, gender-based violence come in many forms. It can come today now with our national laws on gender equality. It can happen in the workplace where men really victimize a woman because she has been promoted and they don't like it. 
So they can uh, be insinuating, they can be negative towards it, it can happen in the workplace. So gender-based violence can happen when you walk down the street and a man makes an unwarranted, inappropriate remark about something you wear, the way you look, or with a sexual connotation when you have not solicited his interest at all. So it can also happen in the form of domestic violence in the home where uh, patriarchal uh, systems entrenched in all our cultures really cause men to uh, take their frustrations out on women because it's always been so easy. You know, it is such a vast array of things that can lead to gender-based violence. We must be very careful. And I'm very much uh, known to ask women to not perpetrate violence against our own gender because such a lot of the patriarchal entrenchment, it flows into our thinking even daily. You know, I'm constantly watching myself and whatever I do, if I'm judging another woman, if I'm thinking anything, because we have been put in a position where women actually measure women with the yardstick of patriarchy. And we need to embrace our femininity and become women again who are nurturers, who are funny, who can be, you know, so many things, mothers, daughters, friends, without this constant yardsticks that are out there for us to be measured with. That's an important point. Since, you know, we're now we're living in very awkward times with a lockdown, restricted movements, and uh, people perhaps being confined for longer than they would have been normally to their homes. Have we seen a, an increase or a change in the in domestic violence since the beginning of the lockdown? And what has the lockdown meant in terms of gender-based violence? Sepal, I'm going to answer you in terms of my personal experience, what I dealt with during lockdown and also from the organization. I cannot speak for government departments as far as this point is concerned because That's we still perfect. need to reconcile. Okay. So we definitely saw a change where the gender-based violence was intense in the beginning, alcohol-related, especially when we went through that first week of a voluntary uh, lockdown and people had free access to alcohol. It was really, really intense. It like tripled in that week. And subsequently later, as the government put in more steps, and I think, you know, uh, it did ease out a little bit, but I think in the middle of lockdown, what we had is the frustration of possible withdrawal. Because if you are used to drinking alcohol consistently and all of a sudden you cut off from it, you're going to have physiological frustrations that you will need to deal with and also psychological. And also the confines of lockdown where people who had separate works and had periods of separation during the day, all of a sudden were confined in one space, all their frustration, all their concerns with how the economic effect of the lockdown would impact them. All those things that normally does not get confined to a singular space was all of a sudden there. And people in their frustrations, their fear, their anguish were confined in the space where who was the one closest to them that they would unfortunately take this situation out on? It was obvious many times partners and spouses and children also. Children also suffered. And in terms of awareness, sometimes, for instance, I would normally associate gender-based violence with physical violence, as in beating somebody. But do you think we're actually aware as a country 
of really uh, the extent of gender-based violence and what, everything that it entails, because I have to question myself when I perhaps make light of something that isn't physically violent, but perhaps could be gender-based violence. Are we aware of these other forms that can exist? I think globally um, there needs to be more awareness. This is not only a South African issue. Um, you must understand, and I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm you know, repeating myself, but for centuries, millennia, patriarchal systems so subtly got imposed in our cultures, in our psychology, that very often... Even myself, I might perpetrate some form of gender-based violence without even realizing. We need to become a mature society. And it's not only South Africa. But with regard to South Africa, I want to say, you know what, let's just face it. Gender-based violence can be the physical violence. But I was connected with the University of Cambridge in 2015, where they did PTSD testing on British soldiers that were in Afghanistan and they compared their PTSD with the measures they got from housewives in the UK who suffered abusive relationships. Now when a soldier goes to war he expects he's going to encounter violence in its worst forms. When a woman gets married she doesn't. But unfortunately after a while a woman who is physically abused learns to expect it. So her PTSD kind of goes to a certain level and then it gets like a plateau and, and she's aware she's going to get beaten if her husband. It's so terrible to say this. But what we have found in this was really crazy is that women who undergoes financial, psychological and emotional abuse measured eight times more PTSD than that of soldiers that fought in Afghanistan. So your mental violence is far more impactful at the end of the day. And I don't want to say, you know what, we shouldn't give physical violence because often it goes hand in hand. But in many cases, you will find that the man does not physically beat the wife or the girlfriend or the children. But the derogatory mental state has got a huge, huge impact. That is so, so true. And I, I, I'm, I'm wondering, I don't know whether your organization is all over the country and whether you have, you know, worked with people from outside of Gauteng, because then perhaps you would be able to assess for us whether Gauteng has more cases that increase during the lockdown period in comparison to other provinces. Is that something that you have in front of you? Yes. What I can tell you is this. When uh, works nationally, we've got representation in every province. We have visited all the provinces. We've done trainings in all the provinces. And uh, we've got more than 58,000 members, and of which about 3,000 is professional volunteers. So we are aware of that. Before lockdown, Houting was had high GBV and, of course, very famous femicide cases. But it was not on the forefront in the provinces in terms of GBV. I do not want to tell you now who is at the forefront. I know that KwaZulu-Natal and Limpopo and Mpumalanga at some stage posed an incredible challenge to me. But I also know the town with the highest GBV is in the northwest. So you've got all these variants and you have to deal with it. And you must now remember, we haven't consolidated the lockdown statistics. 
So I cannot say to you now, okay, now this province is more violent than another province. There's each one presents its own unique challenges. And a lot of cultural understandings and practices play a role. So you can't say somebody's culture is bad. But I remember I was at the Redon's training when it was in September last year. And something that Kings Relatini said struck me very deeply. And he said, you know what? A lot of the customs in cultures has been adopted through the years and it's often that those customs was enforced by chieftains and indunas and people not the king himself and he said you know what tell me any of my ancestors who endorsed that you must beat your wife you know so he was challenging it from a cultural perspective and i would urge all south africans culture can be a very beautiful thing but you look at it and to see what is actually evolution of the culture and what has now become a mundane aspect of the culture and what is something that is abusive. And try and address that and sort through that. Every culture in the world has got uh, something that could be, and on a psychological aspect, contribute to GBV. It is a myth that it is African cultures. It's not. I'm the champion for women because of what I lived. You know, so I'm actually a champion that was chosen to get rid of the stereotyping of what GBV is about and what women go through. So we really need to relook basically everything in our lives from our cultures to our daily actions to our workspace and yeah. see how we consciously or subconsciously might contribute to aspects of GBV. Yeah. And if you just joined us right now, you're listening to Medicine to Divini and Tepo Mohati on BioFM 88.1. It is Real Focus. And we are speaking to Francisca Fonsa from Women Integral Impact Network. And she's giving us a whole historical, um, you know, relationship of gender based violence in South Africa as well as globally. And we have, uh, you know, already gone through some of the statistics that have arisen during the lockdown period. You know, one of the things that for me is important, Francisca, is the issue of terminology victim versus survivor. What is your you know viewpoint of that conceptual debate what should we be saying that is actually uh, something that we are looking into in our commissions in justice in the department now is how to do definitions that actually allows us to move forward some people say women should not be called victims because it keeps us stuck in a victim mentality I think a survivor is a woman who's gone through what she has gone taken her experience and is doing something positive with that experience to either prevent or to contribute to the healing of other women with a similar experience. I do think there are a lot of people, male and female, and in all kinds of things, not only in the context of GBV, that is stuck in a victim mentality. Make no mistake, if you want to overcome the past, I'm constantly saying to people, if you want to overcome the past, make sure it's your lesson. It shouldn't be your grave. We look at different stats, and I had the most fascinating conversations in this week on a webinar with people from the Human Science Research Council and the Medical Research Council of South Africa. And we really need to start growing up as humanity, experience and all. When we go through something terrible, whether it's sexual violence or gender-based violence, which can include sexual violence, it's not the end of the world. We have to learn to work through the pain, to work through the psychology of it. 
and to get to that point where you can say, you know what, I've survived this. I'm a survivor. I'm not a victim anymore. And refuse to allow the person or persons who perpetrated violence towards you. And it can be a sister, it can be a mother, you know, gender-based violence has come in so many forms. It can be a father, it can come in so many forms. But when we get stuck in that pit of terror, then who wins? The perpetrators. We need to really start to see that we, especially women, can survive so much and that we are phenomenal to recover ourselves and to become even better than anybody has ever thought of before. We do not have to relive what has happened to us and actually empower what has happened to us on a daily basis. I'm in deep in thought, but I'm also deep in shock because that's eight times the level of stress that sometimes a war veteran can suffer. I was surprised that it can be as bad as that. No, it was very, very well researched, and that is definitely a fact. It's every day for years and years and years. It can't get any lower, yeah. Yeah. You know, recently we've had a lot of, I don't want to call it activism, but a a lot of attention, a lot of dialogue around gender-based violence, which has led to demonstrations and petitions, etc., which, of course, do raise awareness about the, the problem. But how effective in your experience have they been in actually tackling the core issues around gender-based violence? Uh, Because every few months in South Africa, we have a truly horrendous case, which grabs our national attention. And then we do make a lot of noise. And then it sort of dies down again. How effective are the petitions, demonstrations, etc. so far? You know what? I think they are essential in raising awareness. When we did a march in Atridgeville last year, it was phenomenal. It was a night march. We walked with candles. We all had our wind t-shirts on. The impact was absolutely fantastic. It was on television. We had prayers. It was more in commemoration of the women that died. To me, that is my personal preference. I believe, you know, getting angry at the president and every man out there is not going to serve us. One thing that I said in 2016 is... Everybody is talking about empowering women. We won't achieve anything if we don't equally empower men because this is an issue for both genders. It's not going to be one gender that is going to solve the riddle of gender-based violence and to grow our consciousness to the effect where we will become a more peaceful society globally and in South Africa and women and men will learn how to deal with their challenges in life constructively. Just one of the small things that people don't realize is we don't teach our children that failure is natural. But how many times do you fall and bump your knees before you learn to walk? And then we, our kids start going to school and we start to, uh, they start to get a feeling that we expect them to, you know, they must have A's and things all the time. It's totally unnatural. And therefore, our education systems needs to start to be reviewed. Because what happens now, a man has tried to be an entrepreneur, his business fails. That frustration, that anger, that shame that he deals with, he feels shame because he believes he's been raised that one doesn't fail in life. Failures are part of life. You know, I always say to people, look at your heartbeat. 
It goes up and up and down, above the graph, below the graph, all the time. That is life. The pulse of life is literally like a heartbeat. Men get so pressured, and women too nowadays, to live for perfection, that we forget our humanity. We forget that, you know, we can do have a very good business today and some circumstances something happens, like COVID-19 now. How many people have lost business? It's natural. We need to rally and we need to try again. That is life. That is what makes life life. Not this idealistic or unreal expectations we put on our children. No, that's, that's true. The, the stresses can be amazing. But we need releases for them, I guess. Perhaps because our time is running out. Uh, do you think we can beat it? I do. You know what? Uh, wind trains dialogues. That means wherever we go, we, we invite the women and we say, men, please, come with you, welcome. And with every training that we have done, you can literally observe first the resistance in the session, and then you see things changing. You can literally see the thought processes falling into a different space. There's a better fit. And the communities where we've trained definitely report afterwards that there is more dialogue than trauma going on afterwards. So I do believe if we do want to change, that anybody can change. Everybody has got the ability to make a difference. Everybody has got the ability to say, hey, I've seen this happened growing up. This is not what I want. What do I need to do? to change, to make my external environment better. Because change is an internal job first, before it can affect your external environment. And that's what I'm saying to you, no matter which culture, no matter which language you speak, no matter what you look like, if you desire to change, you will find a way to change. There's so much available today for anybody to do a little bit of self-help that we don't really always need to get the professionals in. It's better that, that we do. It's a very good thing that our government is re-looking really gender-based violence and that we have actions towards it. But ultimately, a government cannot regulate a society into peace. Society must become peaceful by itself. And it starts with each person at a time. I would like to leave you with something. According to the WIN report, and I'm not talking about the other people that did reports, GBV costs South Africa 70 billion rand on a cumulative cost every year. If we can stop fighting each other, our economy will grow. Thank you for that, Stan. A lot of my friends and family, I say half of them have served in the military. Of course, the South African military is more peacekeeping and so on, you know? Yeah. And uh, they actually get a lot of of support when they come back from their missions, you know, in terms of men, mental health, etc., etc., you know, not nearly as enough as they need, but they do get something. People do pick up that there's an issue and they get treatment at one mill or wherever the case may be. And if somebody is at their house experiencing so much more levels of anxiety and yet there is nothing to help them, I mean, I've seen how soldiers who have been badly affected, how long it takes for them to get through it. I can't imagine how it must be for a woman every day at her house. I'm going to have to digest that one. Well, they can contact us at WIN. We do have people that assist them. So we are on the internet. My cell phone number is there. I'm not going to answer, so they must please WhatsApp me. But there's also info at winwomen.com.
they can contact us. We've got various WhatsApp platforms currently. We've got 27 advisories going on WhatsApp with every group has got professionals in the group that can assist women, whether it is with maintenance issues, legal issues, whether it is with personal wellness, whether it is with trauma. We are the space. We are the community for women. You know, Francisca, before you go, quickly, sorry, if you don't mind, you know, I was wondering if you could also give an opinion on something that for me is an important point. <laughs> I think everything is important. It's the issue of victim blaming in the sense that we place so much responsibility on the person who's experienced gender-based violence to do something about it more than perpetrators or other stakeholders. For instance, it's easy for someone to blame the person who you know, was abused when they drop charges, when they don't go uh, to reports, when they fail to take out the protection order, um, as if these are easy decisions to make, right? I mean, because there's so many complexities about life, and etc. And that for me sounds like a very, very privileged view of looking at the whole matter. What is your take from your organization? Do you think it's as easy as some people make it seem to be? It is not. I've been there. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to fear for my life. It's in my history. It is in the organization. We are talking, we are dialoguing in the organization. And there's no way that I will ever blame a woman for staying because I know what women feel, what they consider, what makes them stay. And there's also no way that I will ever look upon a woman and say, you know what, you were too provocatively dressed or you were too this or too that. It simply doesn't gel with me. If you are a sex worker, you are entitled to be safe. There is no excuse under the sun that anybody can give me to make me feel that a woman is not entitled to safety. It simply doesn't gel. We must also get the violence out of families. You know, somebody comes home with your brother and you and your mother team up against her, you know, she's not good enough for him. Why? All this gender on gender violence, that is where it starts sometimes. We need to be responsible as women. We raise these boys that nothing we do can make this son, this boy growing up in the house, disrespect other women. Yes, you are entitled not to like another woman. No, you should not make a spectacle out of it. And we have to take responsibility, not only as the men, but the women too. As I said, you know, we are all needed, both genders and also the people that are gender sensitive. We are all responsible to grow and to become conscious human beings and change this situation that we live in and to become peaceful human beings that does not contribute to the hardship of others. We have to change a lot of things and the court processes too. The intersectoral committee is meeting and I'm going to raise it there. We are looking at things like online applications. When you get to court, I mean, I was so brain fogged at the time when I got to court, the magistrate said to me, I have to have legal representation. I didn't realize it. So the case had to be postponed for me to get legal representation. A massive thing that women face in this country are the judiciary. I find our legal system, and and we are busy changing things through the definitions, and attorneys not knowing how to deal with a traumatized woman. And many times I suspect these professional people might have their own personal traumas as well, which cause a further disconnect. Because when you are traumatized, you disconnect. It's called cognitive dissonance. And we really have to 
reshape so many aspects of our laws and regulations and our processes. And yes, you know, government is in process and we are currently doing that. But ultimately, as I said, you know, we cannot legislate a society to become a peaceful society. It is something that society needs to start embracing by themselves. You know, Francesca, I can tell you I do a lot of family law. And so, of course, domestic violence is part of it. Often where we fail in the judiciary point of view, I think, is that the domestic violence court is very often handled by the most junior magistrate available at the time. So it's a magistrate of six months experience, a magistrate of, you know, who started last month or whatever. And I've had two incidences that I remember very clearly where the one was that I couldn't make it. So I told client to go directly to court. I would meet her there if I could. And she complained the client was not dressed appropriately. She had a shoulderless dress on, you know, with a strap rather than covering the shoulder. And she complained that she couldn't hear her because of that. And I said to myself, but here's someone who was now physically under threat, rushed to court. How was she going to get dressed for court to have the matter heard? I mean, why would that be of any significance? And so I had to leave what I was doing, arrive at about three o'clock in the afternoon and insist. And then it turned into a screaming match. Luckily, you know, it's closed court between myself and the magistrate. I couldn't believe it. And the other one was where she hadn't been struck, but her father-in-law had threatened to stab her with a screwdriver. The magistrate's reading of it was that repeated acts of violence, you know, before she she can actually get a protection order. I mean, you don't have to be struck first and then even in a criminal case, you don't even have to be struck. I couldn't believe it. And I I don't know why it's always relegated to perhaps the more junior magistrates. I mean, because it can be so serious. I agree with you, Tepo, but unfortunately, you know, what I've found is that sometimes the family court magistrates are actually young advocates from criminal law that gets appointed. They don't have that coherence and that deeper understanding of trauma and how to deal with those women. I was one of those women. And it's really something that needs to change. I cannot imagine that there are not enough family law specialists in this country who can be promoted to magisterial positions who deal with maintenance, children's court, domestic violence court. We have to really look into that. And I've been advocating for that in the commission that I'm in. And there's so many things, you know, that don't even always realize that can affect a case so extremely. Um, The Domestic Violence Act is really comprehensive. And even in my own in my own trial, it, and I was already in process of being the, the national champion, I believe my attorney botched a lot of my interim relief because he didn't argue with the magistrates that the Domestic Violence Act allowed me interim relief, that women must leave a home, that children must leave a home because of a perpetrator. And then your attorney, you must argue with your attorney, but you know what, you just botched my interim relief. It's unheard of. That's why I'm saying we do need judicial reform. Because when it comes to appointing magistrates and judges, that happens in the judiciary. We really need to see that this patriarchal hold on the South African judiciary gets to be relieved. 
and that there's more women present. And then when we do appoint a woman as a magistrate, we will have to also start, you know, paying attention to her private life. I've interviewed a woman magistrate in one of our provinces and she said to me, you know what, I go home tonight and I'm abused. Tomorrow I must come and I must have empathy with another woman who's going through less than I am. So there's a disconnect. There's, there is dissidence that happens in our processes, not because those people who are magistrates are necessarily bad, but very often because we don't realize that they are, in fact, in the same position as home, as this victim, this applicant that she is having in front of her at the moment. And because she is coping with her own coping mechanisms, she doesn't have maybe the empathy that is required to handle such a situation. And then, of course, some men, I mean, they are just brutish themselves. You know, it is a very complicated situation. And we need a lot of rethink in our legislation, in our judiciary, and in society at large. We have, need to have these conversations in the workplace because there's a lot of gender friction in the workplace. When we do gender intelligence training for corporates and work environments, and we really, as a society, need to start having conversations. And what is now included in a domestic relationship in terms of the domestic violence law is also a religious relationship because now a relationship with your pastor, your priest, your reverend, that is a domestic relationship. It's not a stranger. And now you have the abuse that comes from there as well. So, you know, it doesn't matter how we define it. The fact of the matter is the world through various instances for wars, for whatever, racism, all kinds of funny stuff, we have allowed ourselves to become conditioned with this power struggles that come and is entrenched in patriarchy and it's spread to every veil of society and we need to start uh, dismantling and fraying all those veils until we can get to the core of just being a human being occupying a physical body that is either male or female or a gender sensitive person and start to begin to live at peace with each other. That is the ideal that I think we should all strive for. As a lawyer, you know, your criticism of the judiciary kind of sticks with me because I find that, you know, I mean, judges and magistrates and whatever, before they become that, they're always lawyers, whether they're an advocate or an attorney or whatever, or a prosecutor, whatever they were. But they were a lawyer before they became a magistrate or a judge. And I find that the, the legal profession itself is not very sensitive to the situation that women find themselves in. So I don't think it's deliberate, but it's the way that the legal profession is structured. It gets very difficult for a woman to become quite senior as a senior attorney or as a senior a a counsel and therefore become a particularly a judge, but even as a magistrate, etc. That gets very difficult. For, and then you have this judiciary, which is a little bit lopsided, not little bit, a lot lopsided, and becomes a bit of an old boys club. And that's an issue, that one, because we get the same kind of thinking all the time. 
Absolutely. You know, I spoke to Anne Shongwe of UN Women in this week, and we are going to take cases to them now where a woman would go, she was in business, there was a male involved, they end up in court because of a dispute, and the magistrate found for the women, and then a year later, in this process with the appeal from the guy, they end up in the high court, and the original finding is completely overturned. Quite some time after, years later, This woman then discovered that the judge that was sitting on the bench that day was a friend of the brother of the opposing attorney. So there's all these relationships and all these things that are happening. I'm dealing with a woman now whose ex-husband is a very well-known attorney and we suspect he, either in a time when she was completely overwhelmed, forced her to sign documents or forged her signatures because her divorce has been rushed through the court as unopposed, where she is supposedly signed her children off and this woman is a businesswoman and I believe her when she tells me this was never my intention so women face a lot of things but when it comes to our judiciary and when it comes to lawyers they are good lawyers I'm not saying that but in general globally I think we see many cases and especially in South Africa because of the apartheid legacy that we see that the law is interpreted in such a way that there is no justice in the end. We need to bring justice back to our courts where attorneys can argue on points of law and for a lay person, when you hear the case, it is obvious that there is a discourse in justice, but because of an argument there in front of a magistrate or a judge, the person who needed the justice is completely overlooked. You know, everything comes back to us as people in society. Who are we? How are we raised? You know, how do we grow up? You have people that are raised by relatively very good people, but the child somewhere gets lost. There's so many fine points when we look at gender-based violence, and that's what I'm saying. If we're really serious about this, we can bring in this life orientation that they have in schools. We can bring peacefulness in there. So there are incredible methods available that has been developed over centuries for people to relieve their stress in a more peaceful way, to learn self-respect. I cannot imagine somebody who respects himself fully as a human being to be disrespectful and violent towards another person. So I really believe that we can do a lot through education and dialogue, and I really wish South Africa will relook our education system and bring peacefulness, anything that is towards personal wellness, to me, to change people's lives and to impact them just for a little positivity, to make them feel better about themselves, about their lives. I mean, that is absolutely, it's amazing. And I was this way long before I married my ex-husband and my marriage ended in the unfortunate sequence that he did. But it's about our humanity. Nobody can tell me you have to be white and educated and have six degrees to be a human being. We were married for 12. Uh, You must realize these conditions, uh, psychological conditions. When it comes to narcissism, narcissism is another conversation. Narcissism, you know, you have narcissism that is related to psychopathy and then 
you have narcissism that is related to sociopathy. Sociopathy is normally the result of early childhood trauma. And they keep up this pretense and they keep up a shell of who they think they should be for quite a long time. But at some stage, the pressure of keeping it up becomes too much. And that is when you're in trouble. And it's normally nothing of your causing. You can't even hate those people because if you if you go and dig in their backgrounds, they hurt. They extremely deeply hurt human beings who don't even like themselves. Thank you so much. You know, it's not a conversation for me. It's one of those that's very close to my heart, you know, for multiple reasons as a feminist, as a woman. And consider yourself fortunate, blessed, whatever it is, if you have never experienced gender-based violence in South Africa, it's highly likely that you've seen it, you know? So I think it's such an important conversation, uh, Francisca. And honestly, thank you so much for, for joining us tonight. We did not even get, you know, into everything that we wanted to discuss. Unfortunately, there's never enough time, but I think it's important for us to continue raising these issues. And whenever you are, you know, invited again, please definitely accept the offer. Let's continue educating ourselves. That was Francisca, founder of the Women Integral Impact Network, and we'd like to thank you so much for your valuable input. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Gender-based violence continues to be a thorn in the flesh. A real, lived, everyday harassment for thousands of women daily. For many families with women, due to the evil of femicide, we are tired of having over 50,000 reported rape cases per annum. This is according to a study by the University of Cape Town, by the way. We are tired of losing up to six women a day at the hands of their partners. More than 3,000 women were murdered between April 2018 and March 2019 in this country. We are tired. The stats keep rising. It is appalling. This is our pandemic that deserves absolute attention and seriousness. Time will tell whether the Victim Empowerment Program, which aims to be a support system and service to victims and survivors of gender-based crimes, will be effective in addressing the plights of those who seek its help. That is a government initiative. It will also partake in changing the narrative of gender-based violence. You know, stop placing pressure on the victim and not doing much to hold the perpetrator accountable. And lastly, leaving our criminal justice system unattended to a misfortune that only loves to perpetuate the problem. Tune in to Law Focus next week to hear the second part of this series. But for now, that's it from us. To our guest, Francesca Fonse, thank you for sharing your expertise and sharing your time with us. We really appreciate it. Now, from our producer, Rifilia Mekwa, our technical producer, Kutwane Sarame, our Law Focus presenters, Melissa Ndiweni, and myself, Tsepo Mapi, good night. Law Focus, Convolve, 88.1, Point of Information. Law Focus Podcast.